Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Ponar's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. Since August 9 egregiously rigged presidential election, Belarus has been the scene of gigantic public protests. The electoral fraud itself is nothing new in Belarus. Alexander Lukashenko has been in power for 26 years. He has long built an unequivocally authoritarian regime in Belarus, less sophisticated than Putin's Russia. He's been generally unconcerned about even the appearance of democracy, let alone its substance. Although elections have been nominally held, Lukashenko has long gotten rid of any competitors. In the past, some of them disappeared, most likely physically destroyed. Some others chose to escape abroad. While early on Lukashenko enjoyed genuine popularity, he has been progressively losing it in recent years. As the August 9 election approached, no public opinion polling was published, no independent observation was allowed at polling stations, and no independent exit polls. This in itself suggests that Lukashenko was probably aware of his dwindling support, but was determined to declare victory anyway. What made this election unusual was the emergence of serious contenders. Unlike those who dared challenge Lukashenko in earlier years, in 2020 at least two of those who sought to join the presidential race were well-established members of the national elite, banker Viktor Babarika and diplomat Valery Tsipkala. A third prominent competitor was Sergei Tikhanovsky, a highly popular blogger. Lukashenko fatigue was obviously on the rise. The government, however, acted in a habitual heavy-handed way. Unwelcome contenders were removed. Two, Bobarika and Tikhanovsky, were jailed. Tsipkala chose to escape. Lukashenko underestimated people's fatigue and their yearning for political change. When Tikhanovsky's wife Svetlana announced that she would replace her jailed husband as a presidential candidate, she was allowed to run. In Lukashenko's eyes, a woman, and a housewife at that, could not count as competition. This was a major miscalculation. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya instantly gained broad popular support, while Lukashenko's support was rapidly declining. Still, Lukashenko failed to grasp the radical change of the popular mood. Rigged elections had been mostly tolerated in the past, but not this time. The officially announced results, 80% for Lukashenko and about 10 for Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, caused unrestrained anger people took to the streets. Like many autocrats before him, Lukashenko's made up for his eroded legitimacy by resorting to brutal force. About 7,000 people were detained, many exposed to beastly treatment. Belarusian people responded with an outpouring of sympathy for the victims and outright hatred for Lukashenko. The protest was joined by factory workers' strikes. For a short while, it looked like the whole country of 11 million rose against its president. But public anger, broad solidarity, and even fearless and persistent street protests seemed to be not enough to topple the Belarusian dictator. As we recorded this podcast in late August, he was regaining at least some ground, not least with support from Russia's President Putin. We will discuss the situation in Belarus with Natalia Chernyshova, academic historian at University of Winchester in Great Britain. Hello, Natalia. Hello. 
And Nikolai Petrov, the head of the Center for Political and Geographical Studies. Uh, currently, Nikolai is at Chatham House, London, also in Great Britain. Hello, Nikolai. Hello. Natasha, you happened to be in Minsk uh, in time for the August 9 election, and you stayed in Belarus until very recently. What were your expectations uh, of this election, and when did you realize that this time the situation was different? What was it that especially struck you? Thank you, Masha. Well, I think the signs were were there even before the, the voting day, that this will be a, a different situation. I mean, elections in Belarus, presidential elections in particularly, rarely go without some trouble accompanying them, whether it be accusations of fraud or, or flawed elections in the best case scenario, or some protests which are usually dealt with with force by the authorities. So there was some expectation that this, this would follow the 9th of August elections. But, but even before the voting day, it was clear that there was something different about the situation. And this came from the, the popularity of one of the candidates that stood against Lukashenko, um, Svetlana Tikhanovska, and, and the turnout at her rallies, the, the, the sheer number of her supporters was unusual because Belarus has not had that for some time. In fact, previous elections, presidential elections, were quite a subdued affair in that sense in 2015. Uh, there was also a, a a new, I think, determination by Tikhanovska supporters to count the votes, to have an alternative count. And that determination was particularly visible in, in the kind of preparation of an online platform um, that allowed people to register their votes and take photographs of their ballots on the day of the voting um, and send them in so that there could be an alternative count. And that also came from the fact that the authorities seemed particularly determined not to allow any independent observers at the elections. If, even the, a team of Russian observers was not allowed uh, into the country and, and certainly, you know, independent observers at home were often prevented or there were fears that they would be prevented from observing the, the voting votes. There was a lot of preparation for early voting and, and indeed the authorities afterwards announced that you know 40% of the population uh, voted in advance, 40% of the voters rather voted in advance of the voting day. So the, there was a, a certain, you know, something in the air before the elections. And, and in fact, the authorities got so unnerved by the popularity um, of Tikhanovskaya that they began to put obstacles in, in, in terms of, you know, her gatherings, her rallies taking place and, and blocking the physical space where they could hold the rallies despite preliminary um, agreements with the local authorities and, and city authorities to, to hold those rallies. So it's clear that they were getting nervous. And then, of course, on the day of the elections, on the 9th of August, it was also very clear that the response uh, from the authorities would be very forceful. And indeed it was. And when the protest began in response to a egregiously uh, rigged election to the results that were announced, how that protest was different from previous occasions? Because protests happened before, also in time for presidential elections in, in Belarus. Yes, certainly. Protests have happened before, although not in the very recent uh, years. But for example, in 2010, there were also substantial protests that took place. But this 
this this was different based in terms of the activity and how many people came out on the first night as the preliminary results were announced and then continued coming out uh, despite the violence. So in terms of the turnout, this, this has been unprecedented. And of course, this culminated on the first Sunday, a week after the elections, when an, an approximate 200,000 strong rally literally filled the streets of the centre and couldn't even fit all into the main square in front of the parliament building. And and that sort of turnout has been unprecedented in modern history of Belarus. So in the kind of sheer mass of people who felt that they needed to step out and say something and be there. And this is, of course, days after this horrendous violence, you know, uh, which... I imagine the authorities thought would cow people into not coming out, but it had the opposite effect. And even more extraordinarily, a week from that huge turnout, we have another Sunday and another mass rally with people coming out. And despite the police and and army presence in the street on the day. So that is one thing in which this is different for Belarus. This is unusual. Belarus has this reputation of a quiet country. Right. And uh, of course, violence, brutality was indeed horrendous. What I noticed, uh, not only in your piece, but also in quotes from other people in the crowd and from other, other observers, people in Belarus often evoke Nazi occupation of Belarus as they face this unprecedented police brutality this time. It seems that in Belarus, this is more than a mere metaphor of brutality. Is this right? Belarus suffered a lot during the Second World War. In relative terms, in absolute terms, it it was one of the worst victims. I think in terms of the population losses, proportionally, it was the worst victim. It was occupied for three years by Nazi Germany, by the army. The occupation was extremely brutal. Belarus was also the killing fields of the Holocaust, where some concentration camps were located, and indeed 800,000 approximately of its own Jewish population, which was almost all of its Jewish population, perished in that horror. It also had the largest partisan movement. And unlike, for example, Ukraine, where there were partisans who were anti-Soviet, pro-Ukrainian nationalists, Belarus did not have that division. Despite some tension within partisan units that spontaneously were organized on its territory and those that were directed from Moscow, both groups were loyal Soviet citizens. So all of these things had an enormous impact on uh, the collective memory of this war in the country, and they became, in fact, the central element of Belarusian identity in the post-war years. So even before Lukashenko came on the scene, if you like, for decades in Belarus, that memory of the war was very much fresh and kept alive by the authorities, although, of course, the trauma was not properly addressed, but the memory was there. And it was not just about the fact that Belarus, the the Soviet Republic of Belarus, had leadership who were, in fact, former partisans. So up until 1980, the Belarusian Communist Party was headed by a former partisan, first by, by Kirill Mazurov and later on by Pyotr Masherov. But it was more than that. It became part of identity. So when Lukashenko came on the scene and in 1994, when he became the first president, um, he built on that. And it is ironic that he you know, kept that memory alive and used it for various purposes of his own, for his popularity, for appealing to um, those who were nostalgic for the Soviet past in the early part of his rule, to promote the closer union with Russia when it served him well, and so on and so forth. And 
and then to have that kind of brutality which is sort of kept fresh and you know alive in collective memory to have it meted out on its own citizens was a shock and i think that accounts for a lot of the you know persistence and a lot of the mass turnout that we're seeing now in belarus and indeed comparisons of the country's own leader to the butchers um, of uh, nazi germany yeah uh, but the interesting thing also that these comparisons this kind of rhetoric that harks back to the second world war is present in both sides and so lukashenko is also accusing his opponents of being sort of pro fascist which he mixes together with being pro nationalist and i think there's a very clear attempt here to to link these events to some extremism and radicalism that was thrown at ukraine and therefore perhaps make russia more worried and and i'm sure nikolai could uh, comment on that but but lukashenko also made use of these kind of symbols and said that the white and red and white flag is a symbol of fascism but i think he's less persuasive than the fact that you know a lot of people were touched personally you know they now know someone who was beaten up or arrested or who has a child who was beaten or a, you know a friend and so and this is much more immediate and this is also new for belarus in the past you know political opponents had disappeared without a trace presumed dead but that was distant and this is now personal indeed nikolai in your view because natasha already mentioned ukraine as a uh, comparison a couple times what are some of the similarities and maybe some of the differences between protests uh, in belarus and in ukraine i think that in in a very general uh, term we can speak about color revolution in belarus if only to have in mind the very general definition which is focused on non-violent political fight and uh, change of uh, the regime in in result that it's hard to compare i think what's going on in belarus now can be hardly compared to well previous examples of uh, so-called color revolutions in post-soviet space perhaps arab spring can work in in some way but i would uh, compare it to velvet revolutions in at the time of the late USSR and uh, late Czech Republic in a sense uh, that regime is different from what we've seen in recent uh, cases in post-Soviet space it's very old and well consolidated autocracy which makes very serious difference with say Ukrainian e- events 15 years ago there are no cracks in the wall so it means that non-violent peaceful protests cannot achieve uh, goals and uh, we can later speculate about how it was evolving and how it was evolving from the opposite side from the side of the regime which is now somehow supported by russian regime and everything else but I think that it reminds most of all Velvet Revolution when there is very general sense that something should be changed but uh, it's not very well articulated it's not I would say even very well understood and uh, in my view that's the reason first uh, that there are huge mass movement because there is no special positive program except of uh, resignation of Lukashenko and uh, any kind of positive program would separate different columns within this uh, huge mass movement but now it looks in my view that 
if only it will not transform into more serious, more aggressive kind of political uh, struggle, if you wish, uh, it would not lead to any positive results because the time when the regime has been caught, uh, well, did demonstrate that it was not well prepared to see, to be challenged by this, has passed. And now it looks like uh, it's more and more easy for Lukashenko to count on keeping his regime alive. Right. Well, this naturally brings us to the discussion of the strengths and weaknesses of the current massive upsurge of popular protest in Belarus. Natasha, you write in your piece about the moral factor and the high moral ground of the protesters. This uh, reminds me, and I'm sure I should remind Nikolai as well, to the protests in Russia in 2011 and 2012. At that point, too, uh, people were saying, we are good people and the, the government is bad. It came down, in a nutshell, it came down to just that. They are bad people, they are lying, they are thieving, and we are good. That protest, of course, the protesters nowhere in 11 and 12, and the reason was the same as in Belarus now, a badly rigged election. I will remind that the Ukrainian uprising was also referred to as a revolution of dignity, also something on a moral ground. You seem, Natasha, to uh, think of this as a strength of this movement, if I'm right. How is it a strength? It seems that Nikolai rather tends to think of it as a weakness, and this is what some commentators in Russia have written in the past weeks, that moral focus rather than political is a weakness of a popular movement, not its strength. Well, I think a, a moral strength is a part of it. Uh, um, and I think there's a little bit more to the protests than just saying Lukashenko is bad and we're good. But it is true that the violence has directed, I think, the protest movement in a particular way and perhaps showed its... I don't know, show it, showed its organisers that there is a, a very strong argument in saying, well, we are against violence. That is an argument not many in Belarus could argue with. As a, unifi as a unifying force, that is perhaps good. And it is also important, uh, I think, that at least for now they maintain that because it does give it does give the protest the kind of umbrella to which a lot of people can subscribe and also, you know, demonstrates very vividly why this regime is good because it, it, it doesn't just disrespect some uh, abstract notion of human rights or choice, but it literally crushes its, its people. And I think the generational aspect is um, also important here because it, it is it waging a war on its young. And you can hear this in, in public speeches that people make spontaneously in social media, that it is our children that they're hurting. And that gives this a, a lot of appeal. I do, however, think that the fact that this movement seems leaderless is an interesting phenomenon. And I'm not sure how to interpret this, uh, because on the, on the one hand, I can see how this serves a pragmatic purpose, and in particular with the coordinating council that has been set up in the absence of Tikhanovskaya when she was forced to, to flee abroad. I can see how that is, again, a, a strength uh, when the authorities began criminal proceedings against the members of this council. It, it is a, a sort of safety in numbers, I guess, you know, that when it's 60 of them and, and seven of them and they are in the presidium making decisions, it, it's a little bit more difficult to deal with than just one person. 
There's also a very strong emphasis within this council on open membership. So they invite kind of associate members. And I've noticed that in the last few days, the associate membership has jumped from about 600 to 3,600. So a considerably larger number have signed up and started signing up literally in the last four or five days. And I think that's also a a bit of a novelty, an innovation that may give this council a little bit more legitimacy because their line is, we are the people, you know, Uh, and and they say to Lukashenko, if you don't like the people, that's just tough, but that's the only people you have. Uh, And um, it could be a strength. On the other hand, I do take the point that the absence of, of... you know, one strong leader, a centrally forceful person undermines or or leaves protesters feel like they don't have leadership. And, you know, as has been pointed out, Belarusians are very inexperienced in protesting. And inexperienced protesters tend to give up or lose heart easily. They think, oh, nothing is changing. This is pointless. Having said that, I keep observing that the protest is constant and there's, you know, simmering pockets here, there, everywhere springing up and the regime might transform into or or the regime might find itself in a situation where it's dealing with a sort of local partisan war. And the strike movement is another example of this that, you know, was very pronounced in the beginning, in the first few days after the, the violence became public news. And then it seemed like it's fizzing out because there was so much pressure uh, on the workers. There were threats of unemployment. There were arrests of the leaders of the striking committees and so on. And I see that this has transformed into a sort of ta- into an Italian strike where people work to contract, you know, constantly uh, sort of slow down because of health and safety issues and so on. And we see the large companies saying that the fulfillment of the plan, if you like, is, is falling already. This is going to bring serious losses to the state and so on. So I can see how this situation can become a very prolonged, less dramatic perhaps, but constant and, and do a lot of damage to the regime. And I would be interested to know Nikolai's view what Russia's approach to this would be because clearly it's interested in a functioning partner on its border presumably. Indeed we'll listen to Nikolai in a minute but I would say that strikes and workers movement is something that is very different from what we had in Russia in 2011 and 12 or at any time actually uh, under Putin. Also this constant quality is very different from what we had in 2011 and 2012 when actually protest was massive and it was unexpected, it was enthusiastic and then protesters went on vacation for a very long time and uh, there were long intervals between mass rallies. However, we had our own coordinating council of the opposition in 2012, and that, I would say, ended in a fairly disappointing manner. So, Nikolai, what do you think about what Natasha said about the quality, the nature of what is going on now? Well, I do think that perhaps the fact that Natalia looks much more positive with regard to future of ongoing protests than myself is a kind of generational uh, difference she mentioned. I was very positive with regard uh, to what was going on a while ago, but I think that now the situation is different. And velvet revolutions in general <clears throat> do work well if there is either alternative within the regime and somebody can come to replace Lukashenko, or uh, there are influential leaders uh, in their position, like uh, Harold we can become, well, the point of consolidation of the opposition forces. 
Now what we see is more about claims for Lukashenko personally to resign. But the problem I see is that Lukashenko made his regime his hostage. And uh, that's why Putin is forced to support him because there is no way for any uh, for anybody from uh, Belarusian elites to come to replace Lukashenko in result. And if uh, Babarika and Tsetkala, well, would be not uh, far away or isolated, it could develop in a different way. But uh, now I think, well, the regime is very well prepared to stay even as a kind of besieged fortress, but uh, to wait. And uh, I, I do totally agree that strikes do harm Belarusian economy. But not only this is right with regard to the state budget, and now Russia is eager to uh, give additional money uh, to the state, but this is true with regard to workers. And we do see crowdfunding, which is a very good thing, but there is no doubt that it cannot last for long. And this is exactly what Lukashenko is looking for. He is looking for, well, that uh, in near future, well, these protests will lose hundreds and thousands due to the fact that uh, they do not bring any results so far. And status quo, which is achieved now, is, I think, in favor of the regime due to additional resources it uh, got from outside to survive. Yeah, this is a pessimistic analysis, and uh, I have to say I tend to agree with that. But uh, uh, one of very important issues, of course, is the role of external factors, external players. Of course, Russia uh, and, and Europe. Belarus is peculiar and, of course, very different from Ukraine in that it is not anti-Russian. There are no anti-Russian forces, and uh, nationalism is very weak in Belarus, right? Language is not an issue, and Russia plays a very big role. Belarus is European. It seems that there are lots of people holding Schengen visas. People travel a lot. They have close ties with their neighbors who are also members of the European Union. How does this play out, Natasha, in your view? Well, I think this is something that leaves the leaders of the protest movement in a difficult situation because on the one hand they don't want to jeopardize the goodwill uh, that they see and a lot of support that they see from uh, their western neighbors such as Poland and Lithuania and even Latvia and further down across the border but at the same time they're very conscious that such support and and even offers of funding. So just as Russia has offered funding to Lukashenko, so did the European Union countries. And the, the, the quantity of that aid is, is quite substantial. And that is aimed particularly at the striking workers or victims of repression and, and those who need uh, assistance. But, but the leadership, I think, of the Coordinated Council is very weary uh, of that aid in the sense that it doesn't want to make the Kremlin worried that Belarus is going to the West, because I think they also aware are aware that this uh, absence of very pronounced anti-Russian feelings, the absence of ethnic nationalism, is, is, is something that could swing the scales for them. And I think you mentioned Babarika before, and it was widely believed that he was Russia's man, obviously because of his 20 years with Belgasprom. And he... 
I think had he not been prevented from running by Lukashenko, he would have been a serious contender. Lukashenko would not have happened had he not been in prison, and, and therefore he would have been an acceptable man to the Kremlin in Belarus, and probably a more sensible and rational partner than the awkward Lukashenko, who's constantly bargaining over oil prices and gas and so on and so forth. So I think I was struck by how restrained Russia's response had been up to now, how slow they were to sort of throw their weight publicly behind Lukashenko. And it made me wonder whether there was kind of another plan being cooked in the background. I mean, nobody is in any doubt, I think, that Russia will play an important part, whatever the outcome. And it's just a question of what exactly is Kremlin thinking would be a preferable outcome for it. An old but very awkward partner or uh, a risk of trying to, you know, see the situation develop and perhaps, who knows, with the help of Belarusian protesters, put a man in the in position of, of power who is nevertheless a loyal and rational partner for Russia. I, I mean, I think that's the, the scenario that we, we saw in, in Armenia in 2018 and the Armenian elections that were peaceful protests, but the person who was eventually brought in through this peaceful protest was, was very much an acceptable person to the Kremlin. So well, we, shall, we shall watch this space. <laughs> Uh, we indeed will. So, Nikolai, this is going to be my last question to you. So, please talk about the dynamic that Natasha mentioned. Indeed, the reaction from Russia was different from what we are observing in the past few days. Why this dynamic? Why the initial reaction was restrained? And it seems that now it's shifted to, to a more forceful reaction. I mean, not in terms of using military force, but forceful in its rhetoric. What about Putin-Lukashenko relations? It doesn't seem that Putin is very fond of his Belarusian partner. So how this factor is going to play out and in, in why the dynamic? Putin hates Lukashenko and it's well known, but is afraid of the regime change. And until very recently, I think it looked like it's possible to wait that Lukashenko will be out, being replaced by somebody else without any serious changes of uh, the regime itself. Now it looks different. And in my view, that's the main reason why the Kremlin did change its mind and did change its position starting from the end of last week. That's why Putin switched from watching from the distance. I think he was watching with uh, certain pleasure what was going on, going on with regard to Lukashenko. But now he is uh, forced to demonstrate his support and uh, he's offering direct uh, assistance. And it's very interesting thing because these two guys uh, do hate each other and Lukashenko isn't our son of a bitch who is uh, good uh, for Russia by all means. But he's considered by the Kremlin to be the lesser evil. And this is uh, very important because all the time we do hear that, well, nobody claims uh, among protesters, or at least there are no mass claims for regime changes for while looking to Europe instead of keeping relationship with Russia and uh, so on. But uh, now it became understandable that in case Lukashenko will be pushed out by this kind of popular rebellion, essential changes of the regime will take place. 
And this makes very serious difference for Russia. And that's why I think that Putin, just like it happened many times in the past, uh, when Lukashenko was begging with regard to oil prices mentioned by Natalia and some other things, Putin is forced now to support Lukashenko if only he would not like to see any real regime change in Belarus. And when supporting regime, Putin is in stronger position than the West. Not only the huge connection between Russia and Belarus at all levels, including not only elites, but ordinary citizens, but due to the fact that Putin offers and gives his aid to the government of the country, while the West, even if being eager to invest huge money, can be seen as intervening into domestic affairs of Belarus, because so far we do not see recognition of Svetlana Tikhanovskaya as elected president of the country. There are no two governments. There is only coordinative council. This is popular movement. I think that Lukashenko's pressure is increasing. And uh, it shows that Lukashenko feels more and more secure, and that's why he acts more harsh now than it used to be last week. Right. Well, unfortunately, I think it cannot be denied that Lukashenko feels more secure now than last week. But he is still facing vehement opposition if the opposition, or the opposition's capacity for action is limited. Very finally, I know how ungratifying it is to try and forecast, but do you, Natasha, and do you, Koli, believe that Lukashenko will serve through the end of this term? I don't know. To go through the end of the term, I, I appreciate that, you know, 26 years is a long time and it is difficult to see how it can change. But I think, first of all, uh, looking at, at some of the historical data, this is about the time when long-standing authoritarian regimes crumble. So 26 years is a kind of, it's like a, a seven years for marriage. It's a difficult year. Uh, and perhaps, you know, perhaps that particular regime has just run its course. I'm not diminishing at all the factor of Russia, which is very important, but Russia also has, you know, its reasons and, and, and how can I put it? You know, the, the thinking in the Kremlin also changes depending on the, on the circumstances. And although a, a lot of the observers have paid attention to Putin's latest interview where he said that, you know, we have formed a special law enforcement unit to send to Belarus at, at a moment's request, he also said, however, and I think a lot of people did not pick up on that, that this will only happen in the most extreme situation of necessity. So, you know, this could also be interpreted as a, as a note to Lukashenko, you know, you sort it out, but if it gets messy, or it could also be interpreted as we never will send this unit. It's true that Lukashenko has seen this as a sign of support, however, and he has become more forceful. But again, as with the violence in the immediate uh, days following the election, this could backfire. I don't think the Belarusians are going to see the results of their protests anytime soon. I do, I, I do think this that we're here, or sort of they're in it for a long haul. However, I'm also not convinced that Lukashenko will be able to go about uh, you know, business as usual after all this. In the words of one observer back home, you can't put the toothpaste back into the tube. Things have changed. Something has changed. And it is about how the Belarusians see themselves now. It's about how the authorities have made a, a number of mistakes. 
that are not going to go away. And Lukashenko has very few options. And, and you know, one of those options, the, the only option really, it, other than a stepping down, is to use force. And also there's a danger that if Russia does intervene more forcefully and more obviously, they will lose that good faith that, you know, the majority of the Belarusians do have for Russia and sympathy and friendly relations. And, and I wonder if that is too costly for the Kremlin to contemplate. But again, we shall see. Of course, we shall. Uh, Kuali, what do you think? How long will Lukashenko hold his office? Let me first try to react on to what Natalia has told with regard to recent Putin's interview. I think it's real game changer. It shows solidarity. It threatens to use force and uh, is aimed uh, to prevent more reactive intervention of the West. If Lukashenko's regime can be seen as a besieged fortress, it does have resources now to survive for much longer than it could count for a while ago. And what is important, I think, that not only uh, a regime is hostage of Lukashenko, but all or essential part of Belarusian elites cannot split because they became hostages as well. And there are no doubts that if Lukashenko is out, this will be not only his personal failure, but uh, a lot of other guys will follow him. That's why it makes them even more consolidated. And that's why I think if only protest will not switch from nonviolent uh, to more violent, it doesn't have chances to succeed. And another important thing is reaction of Russian society, which I think, and I think this is, in, in my view, this is negative surprise for many observers, is not that much in favor of protesters, because it's focused on keeping status quo. So a majority of Russians, and it's clearly seen from recent results of Levada Center poll, they do solidarize not with the society against Lukashenko, but with the state. And that's why they do choose keeping the status quo. So not only Russian authorities, not only the Kremlin looks at what's going on in Belarus from, through the prism of uh, geopolitical thinking, but uh, majority of Russians uh, as well. And that's why it's very important how exactly Belarusian events can somehow have the impact on Russian elections and political development in Russia in general. So from one side, while well, Russians can see that they can protest, including against results of fraudulent elections, but from other side, they do see that it doesn't make that much sense. And that's why I'm a kind of Belarus supporter, but I think it's very important for Russia as well. So far, we do have three aging leaders in post-Soviet space, Nazarbayev, Lukashenko, and Putin. Nazarbayev is out, Lukashenko is close to be out, and Putin, I think, is the next one. So not only it's important to focus on what's going on in Belarus itself, but it's very important to see this against the background of general political development in post-Soviet Spain. So the weaker Putin's regime is in Russia, the weaker is support to Belarusian regime of Lukashenko and, and vice versa. 
Okay, thank you both for a very interesting conversation. Unfortunately, we didn't get any answer to the question from either of you about how long Lukashenko may stay in power. But thank you nonetheless. I don't think he will last the whole of next term. I'm sorry if I didn't answer, I didn't make that clear. I don't, I don't think that will happen. Okay. Kolya, very briefly. Will he or will not? It's not his term, Masha. It's not his term. It's good point. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much. <laughs>